bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is our Tuesday, March 16th, 2021 edition. Today, we're going to discuss the determination of Section 8 rent levels for HUD-supported properties. Now, under Section 8, broadly speaking, a public housing authority, in essence, agrees to pay a landlord the market rent for a unit, less the portion of the rent paid by the tenant. This means that a public housing authority must have a basis for determining market rent levels, what are often referred to as colloquially fair market rents. To this end, HUD regulations provide guidance as to assessing market rent levels. Specifically, HUD regulations provide for both rent reasonableness determinations as well as rent comparability studies. Now, in today's podcast, we're going to delve into the difference between these two. You know, what's the difference between rent reasonableness determinations and rent comparability studies, and when are they used? Now, this topic is particularly timely because of the pandemic. We read in the papers how rents are falling in many urban areas, such as San Francisco, New York. However, rents are rising in Midwestern and Sunbelt areas, such as Cleveland, Memphis, and Phoenix. Now, joining me to discuss this today is my partner, Brad Weinberg, from Novogratik's San Francisco office. Brad is Novogratik's national leader for our Government Consulting and Valuation Advisory Services, or GOVAL practice. He has extensive experience performing real estate appraisals and providing business valuation and economic impact analysis services to our clients. And Brad and his team also provide services related to rent resource determinations and rent comparability studies which is what he's on the podcast today to speak about. So Brad, let me start by thanking you for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. Now, Brad, as I noted in the introduction, our GoVal group assists clients with both rent resource determinations as well as with rent comparability studies. So I'd like it if you could share with our listeners the difference. This is broadly speaking, we have a podcast to go into more details, but Broadly speaking, the difference between the two and what type of clients is generally requesting rent reasonableness determination assistance and services and which generally request rent comparability studies. Sure, Mike. So they're, they're basically, I think of them as, as two sides to a coin. The rent reasonableness determination is what a public housing authority, PHA, has to do in order to determine a reasonable rent in the marketplace for a specific unit that a tenant may have found in a property in the marketplace. So it's specific to the tenant and to um, just an unrestricted property in the marketplace. Whereas the rent comparability study is actually used when there's assistance at a property, whether that's project-based vouchers or just a HAP contract. And so the rent comparability study will look into the community to, to look at what unrestricted rents would be for the specific units that are located at the property that's being analyzed. So in one case, it's just a unit randomly in the marketplace. In the other, it's for when there's specifically subsidy within a, a property. So with rent comparability studies, then you know who ask us for that study uh, and what time of the year or at what point in maybe a project assisted contract cycle might that study be requested? Sure. So the rent reasonableness, why that's requested by the PHA, the rent comparability studies are actually requested by the property owners. So they're property owners that own the properties that have the uh, subsidy on the property and they request the rent comparability study which is used as a basis for determining whether or not a rent increase may be warranted. There's a, a couple of reasons why people request RCSs. One is in their normal course of what's known as a five-year cycle, in order to determine if a rent increase is appropriate, they'll commission a, a rent comparability study, and then that's used to set the rents for the new cycle. 
But more often than not, what we're seeing these days, the need for the rent comparability study is when the project-based HAP contracts from these properties are then used in conjunction with a local housing tax credit acquisition rehab project. So there you'll, you'll see that there's, there'll be a rent determination, not only of the existing condition, the as-is condition of the property, but they also are, are the, the developers and the property owners are also seeking to get a indication of the rent post rehab. And then they go to HUD um, as part of this process and they get typically a new 20-year contract and the rents are set for both the as-is upon closing, as well as the post-rehab rents, which are determined prior to closing, which gives lenders the security that that income will be there when, in fact, the, the property is renovated. Thank you, Brad. That was a great overview of rent comparability studies. I'm sure some of our listeners are going to have additional questions on rent comparability studies. And I would ask you to go ahead and just uh, email Brad directly. Uh, I will share his email address at the end of the podcast, and I'll include it in the show notes as well. So we talked about rent comparability studies, but I wanted to now turn our attention and most of this podcast to rent reasonableness determinations. And, you know, starting by, you could expand on why they're needed. You gave kind of a broad overview, but if you could share some more details about the importance of rent reasonableness determinations right now. Of course, Mike. So there, fundamentally, I, I look at it as there are two driving forces behind the need for a strong rent reasonableness process. The, the first is that, I mean, this is the taxpayer money. So the reality is that PHAs need to be good stewards of the taxpayer dollar. But the second and most important one is the whole, the whole point of the program is about is to, to ensure that the rent that's being paid to a landlord is consistent with what is being found in the marketplace. Having a good understanding of rents allows the housing authority to assist as many families as possible. If you think about it, if they overpay rent, then there's less money because it's a finite pot. There's less money available to go to assist other other tenants. So it's very important to ensure that the PHAs are not overpaying landlords so that they can spend the most money uh, around as they can. And then conversely, they don't want to underpay either um, because especially in high cost areas, it's often difficult to find landlords who are willing to accept the housing choice vouchers. So if you end up underpaying or underdetermining the, what the market rent is in a location, then you may actually end up having less availability, less landlords willing to participate in the program. So Brad, can you now uh, discuss what considerations go in to a rent reasonable determination by a housing authority? Sure, Mike. So I think it's important to kind of uh, step back for a second. Historically, there were actually several programs that were similar to the current Housing Choice Voucher Program. And then back in the late 1990s, these programs were combined into the current form of the Housing Choice Voucher Program that we know today. And as part of that com um, combination, there was a rule that was published to address specifically rent reasonableness. And later HUD notices were provided that provided additional clarification for that. Before this, there was actually very little guidance from HUD and very little emphasis on the basis of a rent determination. The, the, the process varied dramatically from PHA to PHA. And there is frequently little support or documentation for established rents. Well, th this new, the combination of programs and the new guidance really put an emphasis on what reasonableness is and the need to kind of ensure that PHAs at least are following some form of process for determining a rent that they're paying in the marketplace. And so they came up with uh, a number of things that, that have to be considered. And these include location. These are specific specifically identified by HUD in their guidance, specifically consider location of the property, quality of the property, size of the unit, uh, the unit type, is it single family, is it townhouse or garden style, age of the, the contract unit, really age of the building, and then 
any amenities, housing services, uh, maintenance, and utilities to be provided as well. And when we say amenities, we're talking about does it have a dishwasher, does it have a garbage disposal, or pool, fitness center, and, and so forth. And then I, I also want to make clear that HUD sees rent reasonableness from the perspective of the total cost of the housing, which includes the utilities. So it's not sufficient just to look at what a landlord might charge. You have to understand what utilities are not included and make sure that you adjust that rent level to include the utilities as part of the comparison. And this is all laid out in a HUD's Housing Choice Voucher Program Guidebook. It's a, the Chapter 9. And there it provides criteria for the rent reasonableness. It also provides some suggestions for methods for supporting the rents. And then there are a bunch of templates and other information there in terms of forms, certification and so forth that are suggested templates for public housing authorities to follow. Great. Thank you for that summary. And that's an excellent point about the importance of dealing with utilities and the all-in cost of the unit as opposed to the uh, unit before utilities that run a rate. Now, I mentioned in the uh, introduction, or at least implied, that the pandemic has made getting updated rent reasonableness data even more urgent for public housing authorities. But before we go to present day, in a pre-COVID world, I think you know, more than a year ago, because yesterday was the one-year anniversary where we at Novogratic started working from home, uh, virtually entirely across the firm. But you know, more than a year ago in our pre-COVID world, how often did PHAs typically update you know their system, their data for making these rent reasonableness determinations? Well, it 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 does depend upon what what type of system a PHA is using. But in general, you you saw uh, databases be updated pretty much yearly, and that that was deemed acceptable. Uh, with HUD. If something unique happened, then then it'd be more frequent than that. Certainly, if someone's not using any kind of data, database, then it has to be kind of um, done ad hoc, and that would be um, in the moment. But for the most part, if there are any kind of databases, uh, it typically is updated yearly. When we do, our, when we do the work for our clients, uh, we typically will update it yearly. So, you know, as a maybe a general rule, or at least a common uh, occurrence of annual in a pre-COVID world, uh, we're not in a pre-COVID world. Uh, we're living in a COVID world now. So, you know, in the present day, how often should PHAs be updating their information that's used for determining rent reasonableness? Uh, and I recognize your answer might be a range. <laughs> so maybe you can just, uh, you know, share the thinking here. There's no right answer, but there's uh, some answers that are better than others. Sure. And, and of, of course, uh, boy, it, it'll be nice to be in a post-COVID world again, <laughs> at yes, some point here. So. Yeah. <laughs> but but as you, as you kind of alluded, the, the answer, the short answer is it depends. <laughs> um, but I, so I think it really depends upon the PHA jurisdiction and the evident impacts of uh, the pandemic on the rental housing market. And you alluded to in your introduction that there's there's definitely variability across the country in terms of the impact of the pandemic. But the variability can actually happen within a footprint of a of a PHA, depending upon the size of the PHA. Some county PHAs, for example, have uh, locations in urban elements, rural elements, as well as suburban elements, and the need for information um, will really di- be dictated by what's happening in that location. So the bottom line is, I think that a PHA should just remain in communication with landlords, tenants. And then it's real with real estate experts that they most work with within the community, or if they're using a third party uh, provider, such as what we provide, then they should be in contact with that provider as well to try to get, make sure that they have a, some understanding of what's going on in the real estate market uh, across their footprint. 
So you uh, you did note, as I did in the intro, about the volatility in the rental market sort of at large. And I gave some examples, you know, based on cities. And then you note that a particular housing authority, depending upon their footprint, could see a great degree of volatility and variability within their footprint. What are some of the rental trends that you've seen in terms of rent rates? What patterns have you noticed? I know everything's unique, <laughs> but yeah. uh, among everything that's unique, patterns emerge. What are some of the trends you're seeing? Sure. Some of the general trends include, which isn't, you know, these probably at this point are not all that surprising, but there's definitely been a flight for urban cores that have resulted in a decrease in demand for housing in that market. And as a result of the work from home orders, people have had less of a need to be close to employment centers. So that's also been part of the reason why people have left the urban cores and gone to suburbs or outlying areas. And then there's uh, a lot of people who um, felt the need for uh, larger spaces um, needed, uh, as well as maybe potentially needing someone to kind of bubble with, if you will. And so there's been there's been a movement towards larger units, whether it's a two bedroom to, to provide for that space for the work from home, or people seeking who may have been in studios or, or smaller units seeking kind of roommate situations to at least have someone there, as well as uh, having the, the larger space. Um, so you, there's definitely been an increase in demand, kind of been more in the suburban locations and outlying areas, and then less demand for for smaller units, um, particularly studio units. And then, of course, there's also been a, with, with some of the, the kind of the first generation tenancy, a lot of that uh, tenancy actually ended up moving back to their home of origin. Again, they could work, a lot of them could work remotely anyway, and, and were able to do so back with their family. So it actually pulled people out of the rental market as well. Although there is some evidence that that may be reversing it, it itself here, but at least over the past year, certainly that, that has been part of the, the pattern of renter behavior and also resulting in some of the decrease in demand. So you, you noted the desire by many to have more physical space uh, if they're working from home. Are you noticing even in a given property, perhaps that, you know, two and three bedroom units might be seeing an increase in demand, whereas a studio might be seeing a decrease that even gets down to the property level? Uh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you, you'll see where the oftentimes because of the, the lack of demand, a property may be offering concessions that they hadn't previously offered or, or specials. And so you do see people within a building moving from a studio to a one-bedroom or even a two-bedroom because the rent differential between what they were paying for that studio and what they can now get the, the larger unit for has shrunk dramatically. Now that's a great insight. So we, we seems like we've talked about Sort of large cities and suburban and the rest, but what about rural communities? Uh, you mentioned, you know, some workers going back to their either home of origin. Some of it probably was rural communities. What are you seeing more specifically with respect to rural communities? Well, the reality is that rural communities have generally fared pretty well. The, the reality is that the, these communities tend to have smaller inventories of prop as properties um, in the marketplace. Um, there's usually less new construction activity in those markets. And these are the jurisdictions that were least likely to have full shutdowns of their economy during, during the past year. So on a whole, the rural markets have fared better than most. It's not that you've seen a dramatic increase in, in rents, 
but it, it's it's pretty just remained fairly stable over the past year. And I suspect you're seeing some increase in occupancy levels. Some, yeah. When we're talking about true true rural, it's we're not really having a flight of people from uh, you know urban cores to true rural markets. But obviously, if you're talking kind of exurban or just on fringes, then yeah, you've seen, definitely seen seen that happen. Okay, Brad. So maybe you could uh, dive down, and if you had any specific examples, we've talked about some generics, and I mentioned a few cities in the intro, but it's always insightful to give some examples uh, of specific cities uh, or counties or states where uh, you get information that uh, is uh, that helps better illustrate uh, what is we've been talking about today. Sure, Mike. And of course, all real estate markets are, are local. But ha- having said that. Um, we, you know, I mentioned how in urban markets, they, they generally suffered the most decline, but it's not just urban markets. It's also a lot of the urban markets that were kind of booming before the pandemic had a lot of construction activity going on. And that's had a, a substantial impact on the resulting decline in, in rents and vacancy or increases in vacancy in those markets. Let me give you a specific example. If you if you look at Nashville, Nashville was booming before the pandemic. Downtown Nashville was like many other urban cores, attracting a lot of younger tenants as well as older tenants as well, looking to re- retire in the downtown locations. But downtown Nashville saw decline in demand at the same time that they were delivering over 1,900 units over the past year. And not only that, but there are currently 4,500 units under construction in downtown Nashville. So this, the, the, the combination of the decrease in general demand because of the pandemic, as well as the addition of these units that just had very little demand, it has resulted in, in rents declining by as much as 20% or more for some unit types in downtown Nashville and a vacancy rate of uh, north of 15%. So any of the locations we talk about urban cores where there was combination of, of just people exiting the market plus the large volume of construction really exacerbated the, the impact of the pandemic on the market. Conversely, we can look at a place like Chandler, Arizona. Uh, Chandler is a suburb of Phoenix. has a population of about 250,000 people. It's located in just in the East Valley, just about 20 minutes from Sky Harbor Airport. Um, so it's not that far away from, from the uh, urban core. But um, the reality is during the pandemic, the rental market in Chandler has actually been strong and benefited by the um, people moving from the urban core to suburban locations. In fact, and part of part of what made that happen is the fact that there was very little new inventory coming online. There was not a lot of construction. So they had an influx of people, not a lot of new construction. So they actually saw a decrease in vacancy in the market over the past year, down to 4.2%. And rents actually increased by 2.5% over the past year. So it really does just depend upon the circumstances. And obviously, it can be a fluid situation as well. And I, as I mentioned, there's also the variability within unit type as well. So thank you for that, or those examples, uh, both Chandler, Arizona, and uh, Nashville, Tennessee. So it definitely demonstrates how important uh, updated rent reasonableness data or system is. So I can envision a listener who works at a public housing authority uh, and thinking, okay, I recognize the importance of uh, keeping the uh, rent reasonableness system uh, updated. What should that person know about how to keep the uh, system updated. Obviously, not all s- professional service providers who help housing authorities with their rent reasonableness determinations uh, provide the same level of service and, pr- and provide the assistance the same way. What should listeners look for in a good service provider in assisting them with their rent reasonableness determination system? 
Well, I think first and foremost is to trust a firm that has expertise in understanding markets and market analysis, and specifically with affordable housing. And then you really need to discuss the methodology and approach that firm may use, because the reality is not all approaches are created equal. When we, Goval, Novogratic, first enter the marketplace, we saw that most providers out there relied on subjective rankings and what I call qualitative methods to estimate at rent. From the inception, the system we put together, a rent reasonable system, um, and it's now t- probably 20 years ago, we wanted to find a better way to use real estate data. And so we chose to focus on quantitative analysis using regression to help determine rents. We believe this uh, approach uh, provides more accurate determination of rents and is less subjective than other approaches. And then certainly in more recent times with the explosion of big data over the past decade, as well as the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's allowed us to continue to improve on the system to provide highly reliable rent determinations. And also at the same time, a at a cost that is far more reasonable than was possible just a short time ago. So bottom line is you really need to make sure that you understand the system that you want, make sure that you've to the, to the right consultant, the right people who can help make that come to uh, reality and make sure you understand the methodologies that are going to be applied so that there's no misunderstanding <laughs> on the outside the outcome of the system. Great. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Brad's email will be in today's show notes and I'll give more detail if you want to reach out to Brad at the uh, end of the podcast. But I do uh, have uh, a little bit more for you, Brad. <laughs> I appreciate you okay. being on the podcast. So this is the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast, and we haven't talked about tax credits much so far. Uh, obviously, we've talked about affordable housing and we, t- we go beyond tax credits on the podcast. But for our listeners who are wondering, if you could maybe explain uh, the intersection of Section 8 uh, tenants and low-income housing tax credit properties, uh, sure. or more specifically, low-income housing tax credit properties that uh, have uh, housing choice voucher tenants. Sure. We, we don't want to leave uh, the low-income housing tax credit properties out of this discussion at all. I guess the, the, main, the, the point is the rent reasonableness system and the housing choice voucher program as it relates to tax credit properties, is the fact that it the tax credit properties really provide additional units in the marketplace for housing choice voucher tenants. In many markets, there's a scarcity of available units for, for tenants to use the housing choice vouchers. Landlords don't have to accept vouchers. And particularly in many high-cost high, high cost areas, they, they don't. So tax credit properties actually provide a, a, a real benefit to um, housing choice voucher programs and they also benefit by the fact that just like any other unassisted unit in the marketplace, the rent for that unit is going to be based upon the rent determination system that the PHA has. So it's going to be the rent's going to be based upon unassisted rent in the marketplace. It's not doesn't it's not restricted or limited to the LIHTC rent at the property. So it it often provides additional resources to a property that can often make the difference between you know being a successful project or offering additional services to tenants that might not otherwise be possible. Well, thank you, Brad. Uh, before we close, I did want to give you an opportunity to share anything else that you think public housing authorities should know uh, about rent reasonableness determinations and rent reasonableness determination systems. Alrighty. So for some uh, small PHAs, it may make sense to create their own database to use for rent reasonableness. For others, an online system like Novogratix may make sense. But all PHAs should understand that reliable, quality, and timely data is the key to creating a successful rent reasonableness system. And also the key to better serving those in need of affordable housing in your community. Absolutely.
So thank you, Brad. That was a great overview. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast today and helping clarify the uses of rent comparability studies, as well as the importance of rent reasonableness determination systems at public housing authorities. And as I mentioned a couple of times, if you have any questions about the topic, please reach out to Brad at brad.weinberg at novaco.com. That's Brad, B-R-A-D dot Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G at novaco.com. And as I also noted, I will include his email address in today's show notes, which are available at www.novaco.com slash podcast. Also want to let you know that next week, we're going to have my partner, Craig Staswick as a guest. He's going to discuss real estate cost segregation studies. I'd made mention of us scheduling him for a podcast uh, a few podcasts ago. Uh, Cost segregation studies are where you separate the real estate property into various asset categories that all have different recovery periods. And these studies allow developers and investors to maximize tax benefits from their investments. And Craig will discuss why cost segregation studies have become much more common in recent years as well as who can benefit from them. We're also going to discuss the future of cost segregation studies for low-income housing tax credit properties. There's some interesting timing uh, coming up down the road. Uh, Developers and investors will really benefit from the insights that Craig can share. You can make sure you're notified as soon as that episode and future episodes are available by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. You can go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to stream the show directly from our website. You can also subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.